probably follow along some of the themes that Ajanashalo was talking about and the marvels of modern technology. I, I didn't have time to run down here right after I'd arrived, but I did watch Ajanashalo's Dhamma talk from my kuti on, on a phone. So I know that he's now uh, at the end of his talk, he announced to everybody that I'll be doing some bowing in Bodhgaya. And so I've been here at Wat Mapjan training to do that. And it's actually good that it's it's very hot here and humid. And I'm not quite used to this. I did used, I lived in Thailand for six and a half years before, but now that I'm just visiting for six months, taking a break from the habit of a Baigiri, not body's not quite used to it. So in addition to talking about faith, I'll also talk a little bit about patient endurance, which is an important quality to be cultivating on the path of practice. But even backing up a little bit, I guess what's coming up for me is just how wonderful and amazing it is that we all have the opportunity just to live a Dhamma life, just to come back to that, just to how, how it's actually marvelous and wonderful that we actually have this opportunity just to practice and live with the Dhamma, even if we don't reach the goal of the Dhamma, Nibbana, even if we don't reach liberation in this lifetime, it doesn't matter. Just the fact that we have this opportunity is unbelievable and unbelievably rare in the world, the, the opportunity to practice sila, samadhi panya, the opportunity to have just even just sila, the opportunity just to have that and to actually think that it's worth following, to think that precepts are a good thing and that they're worth following is not normal, actually. So this is a, our great good fortune that we actually have faith in these things. So talking about faith, faith is a quality which is very important. It's indispensable in the practice, sattā is the Pali word. And it's talked about in many different ways in the teachings and the Krupa Ajans talk about it in many different ways. I think of it in two main ways probably. One is Tathagata Bodhisattva, which is the faith and the awakening of the Tathagata, that enlightenment is real, that Nibbana is real, that it actually does exist. And uh, like Lungpa Anand was saying in his talk this morning, like, uh, Sawan Mi Jing, Narok Mi Jing, Nibban Mi Jing, these things actually do exist. Uh, heaven actually really does exist. Hell really does exist. Nibbana really does exist. Yeah. Or I think of like the uh, statue of Somdet Do, where he has this strange mudra that he does, where he has his left hand on here and then his right hand. And so that, that's symbolic of the, the left hand. The left hand is bap or bad kama. The right hand is bun or good kama. And then the heart transcends both. So he has those two under his heart and the heart can transcend into Nibbana. So uh, the way the Kurubhajans teach, the way the Buddha teaches is totally amazing to me. It becomes more and more amazing over time as, as, I, as I keep going as a bhikkhu. Sadha, another way of thinking of it is not just awakening of the Tathagata, but awakening of all Tathagatas or just the possibility of enlightenment as a, as a reality, as a potential, as a possibility. Or you can think of it as Sadha as a quality in and of itself, which is perhaps these days more pertinent to me. The Buddha, when he was a Bodhisattva, he talks about that he was already full in the five indriya, the five faculties of sattā, virya, sati, samādhi, panya. But he doesn't talk about when he was a bodhisattva what he necessarily had sattā in, but he was full in that quality of sattā. So what does that mean? That he had full sattā when he was practicing. So when we talk about sattā, which is translated in English as faith, we're not necessarily talking about faith in something, but we're talking about faith as a quality in and of itself that we're cultivating. And then that builds up a sense of confidence in the practice. So perhaps faith, sadha, 
has a basis. It has a basis in terms of Tathagata Bodhisattva. It has a basis in terms of the Buddha, the teacher, the reality of enlightenment. But also it can be seen as a quality, as an indriya, as a faculty in and of itself. And then sadha leads on to virya. If we, if we don't have faith that something is good, if we don't have confidence in something that, that something is going to be of benefit to us, for example, sila, the, the Buddha said, sila sadha sampano, which means sila is perfected through faith. Sila is perfected through sadha. So we can see that sadha is an important quality for the practice of sila, for the practice of precepts. So we put energy into that. If we have, if we have confidence that that's a good thing, then we put energy into it. So whatever we're putting energy into, we can see that we have that quality of sata. When we put energy into something, then we apply our mind. And so that's sati, that's the third indriya. That's the sati is not that easy to define. It's like a recollect, reminding ourselves what we're supposed to be doing at any given time, an application of mind. Sati is coupled with Sampajanya, which is clear awareness. Sati, Sati and Thai is normally translated Kwamruluk Chop and Sampajanya Kwamru Rop, or knowing around, knowing full awareness, full clear awareness. So we couple those terms together, sati sampajanya, and you'll hear the Kurubhajans talk a lot about sati panya. I know in a lot of Lunga Mahabhuva's teachings, he talks about sati panya and mahasati mahapanya. So he talks about those qualities working together and panya being normally translated as wisdom or discernment. So sati is the third of these indriyas of these five faculties and then Samadhi is the fourth of these. So when we have mindfulness, then this quality known as Samadhi can come about. And sometimes, probably more so in the West, I've heard it asked, but it does get asked in Thailand as well. well should I be practicing Sati or should I be practicing Samadhi? And really those two can't be separated. And I've heard more than a few Ajans who I have a lot of confidence in say that Samadhi comes out of the Sati. And when the Sati is full, then, then the Samadhi is there. And Samadhi is a quality that builds up in the heart. So the Thai translation of Samadhi is Kwam Tung Jai Man, which is like the firm establishing of the heart, or you could say the upright quality of the heart, upright unshakable, but not necessarily completely rigid, not in a rigid sense, because the Buddha also talks about these qualities of being malleable, fit for work. He talks about the prerequisites to samadhi as the mind is, well, actually he talks about the results of samadhi. The mind is malleable, fit for work, flexible, not biased, not stuck on its own views and opinions. And then it can develop discernment. The way I think about discernment, the last of these five faculties, banya, I think of that as a dynamic quality of mind. That's a dynamic quality of mind where we respond skillfully to any situation. It's not like, it's not a knowledge in the sense, it's not like we get the multiple choice answer correct and we get a good grade. It's not like we just, get the right answer and that's discernment. Discernment is a dynamic quality that we build up as a faculty and it comes out of these qualities of sati and samadhi. So discernment, the analogy I always use and continue to use is it's transcends book knowledge because it's like if you have your hand in a fire, if you place your hand in a flame and it's hot and burning, you pull your hand out immediately. It's just automatic. You don't have to, you don't have to have your hand burning in the fire and ask somebody to go get you an instruction manual about how to take your hand out of a fire. Your hand just comes out of the fire immediately. 
So that's panya, that's the panya, I think of that as the panya of the body, this natural response that the hand doesn't want to be burned, it pulls out of the flame immediately, and it's automatic. You don't have to think about it, you don't have to consult a manual. So I like to apply this to the mind as an analogy, that the mind is in the fire of dukkha, the mind is in the fire of kilesa, of defilement and suffering. And with panya, the mind will extract itself immediately because the mind doesn't want to suffer. The mind doesn't want to suffer. The way this is slightly different or a lot different than the hand in the fire is that the mind's always been in the fire and never experienced being out of the fire. It's never experienced the coolness of Nibbana. And so it doesn't know, it doesn't know how to get out of the fire. But with the quality of Panya, the mind will want to extract itself immediately and automatically. And we won't need to consult the suttas. We won't need to listen to the teachings. It'll be automatic because the mind, the heart doesn't want to suffer. And the big problem here is there's this quality of ignorance, delusion, and everything we do in our life, we want to be happy. We want to have more well-being. We want to have more pleasant experience in our life. But because we misunderstand, we invariably do things that we think will lead to our happiness and they, they, they actually bring more suffering. So the Buddha's there very compassionately saying, okay, well, I can take you by the hand and follow this sila. That's the first step, cultivate some samadhi. Here's how you cultivate wisdom. Here's how you do it step by step. And depending on each person's paramis or spiritual qualities, then we can start to live our Dhamma life. It's a great blessing. Sometimes we might get frustrated. Sometimes we might get frustrated. The mind won't calm down. The mind won't be still. And so myself, I'm 20 vasas as a monk and my mind isn't, isn't still. I'm not a natural samadhi type. And, but I do see more, I do see it in, more in terms of not self now than I used to. And so that's a function of mindfulness as well. It's, easy to misunderstand at first that we're actually trying to stop thinking, but that's actually not the case. We're actually trying to respond skillfully to our thinking and put some space around the thinking, get some context for our thinking and learning which thoughts are helpful, which thoughts are harmful. What should we be paying attention to? What should we not be paying attention to? So if we just try to stop thinking through a force of will, we might actually achieve that temporarily, but it's not going to be peaceful. And I can't think of a single place in the suttas where the Buddha tells us to stop thinking. He does say that the thinking does subside eventually through the samadhi in a very natural way, but he doesn't say to stop the thinking. There is the sutta about the cutting off of distracting thoughts, but it's actually the first step of that is replacing it with a more wholesome thought or changing if if our train of thought is leading to hindrances then changing up our train of thought making it more wholesome bringing up a more wholesome contemplation for ourselves so from the outset we it's good to set the attention to be at ease we want to be at ease that, that 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 is the intention. So then we, we start by just, this is what I do for myself. It's, okay, everything's okay right now. Everything in the moment, everything is okay. And can be at ease, breathing in, breathing out, letting go of tension, relaxing, relaxed yet awake. And we say upright, but not uptight. And so we start with a sense of sabai, a sense of ease and well-being. 
we don't necessarily need to achieve great things in our practice right at the outset. It's just getting those basics, just focusing on the sila, focusing on the daily meditation, just getting, getting into a daily practice, which is sustainable. So it's wonderful to see everybody here on this retreat. And there is a lot of, you can almost feel the sense of sincerity in the room. So this is a very good thing. It's, it's actually very easy to give a Dhamma talk when, you, when there's a lot of sincerity, when, when people are lending an ear and to, intent on the practice. And there's actually a sutta about that, that there's, there's different reasons why the Dhamma flows. Either the speaker is into it. If the speaker is into it, then the Dhamma flows. If the audience is into it, then the Dhamma flows. And if the speaker and the audience are into it, then the Dhamma flows. So for me, uh, because I'm still at a fairly low level in my practice, it's very helpful for me if the, if the audience is into it. And uh, so that that's I'm quite grateful for that. And I know I've always blown away by Lumpur Sumedho. If the audience isn't into it, he can still talk. I've, I've seen him talk on the Dhamma when the audience isn't into it. If you, if you can believe that, somebody wouldn't be into Lumpur Sumedho. But I have seen him talk, and he just uh, it doesn't matter to him. And I think probably Lumpur Cha and the Kruba Ajans are the same. They're into it. They're, they're firm in the Dhamma, so they're totally into it. They don't need the audience to be into it, but for us beginners, it's quite helpful to uh, to speak to a receptive audience. So thank you for that. And patient endurance, touching on patient endurance a little bit. It's very hot here, and I'm comfortable enough being surrounded by fans. Um, but uh, I mean, uh, fans like these fans, <laughs> not not you guys. <laughs> I wouldn't I wouldn't uh, presume to claim that. But uh, but there's no air conditioning in here, and that would be ideal if there was some nice air conditioning. And uh, the kuti I've been assigned this time doesn't have air conditioning, so. Actually, with patient endurance, it's a quality which is very important to cultivate because we can always make ourselves happy and content at any time, even if we don't have air conditioning. And the way we do that is we come back to sati, we come back just to the experience of things as they are in the moment. And we say, okay, well, being hot is like this, sweatiness is like this, wet robes are like this, and it's not a problem and just surrender to that, surrender to that feeling because it's kind of acknowledging the, the suffering of resisting, the suffering of resisting the inevitable experience that we can't get out of in the moment. So there is a choice there. We can either cultivate mindfulness and cultivate patient endurance and not suffer in the moment, just accept the situation for what it is, and we can even smile and chuckle at ourselves for uh, the kind of, it is kind of funny when we think about it, how much we suffer over these things. And then it's totally okay. It's actually the experience is totally endurable, whether it's hot or whether it's cold. Sometimes if, it, if it's, these are obstacles to the practice the Buddha spoke of, if it's too hot, if it's too cold, there's not enough food, there's too much food. These all can be excuses that we use to uh, not practice. And for me, it's been extra sweaty because I have to do this bowing training to be ready to do enough bows in, in Bodhgaya. So it's actually uh, not that noble of an aspiration because it's a determination that I made last time I was in Bodhgaya about five years ago exactly five years ago. And it was something that I had made a determination for myself for a certain practice I was going to do at a Bayagiri while I was there. And although I kept that 
mostly good enough. I have, I didn't keep it as I intended. And so my determination last time I was in Bodhkaya was to, if I didn't keep this particular Aditana when I'm at a Bayagiri, then I'll go back to Bodhkaya at some point and do 10,000 full body Tibetan style prostrations, uh, circumambulating the temple. And so that was to give me impetus to keep this particular determination at a Bayagiri. It's not something I want to do. It's intentionally choosing something I don't want to do so that I keep this determination, but then I didn't, wasn't able to keep it perfectly. And so I thought, okay, well, I just have to, I just have to do this to fulfill my promise to myself. And so it's actually more of a result of a previous determination rather than being just a, a fresh determination. I would probably not really in my right mind determine to do 10,000 full body Tibetan style prostrations because one is you can't wear your robes when you're doing it. It's I tried to wear my robes and do it. And after, I, even though I tied my robes on in, in different places, I, I used cords to tie my robes on and try to keep them on. After eight bows, they were completely off. And so uh, so I talked to Mokwa Anan about it and uh, he had some nice suggestions and, and uh, I'll be having to ask permission from the Buddha to be bowing around the uh, center of the barmy of the Buddha, but without my robes on. <laughs> but that's maybe part of the, maybe that can be part of the purification, the embarrassment of it. So, and, and to do it, I think I won't have to be doing it all day. I'll have to do at least 500 bows a day, which then it'll take 20 days and I'll be there for a month. So that gives some time for sickness and exhaustion. And I figure if I do, Ajahnachalot said one Kora, one circumambulation on the outer path of that, uh, of the three paths at the Mahabodhi temples, about 200 bows. So I figure if I do three of those, that's, that's good. That's good enough for a day. I do one in the morning, one sometime midday, one in the evening. And so just having to build up those bowing muscles. So I've, I've been training doing this bowing in my kuti here at Wat Mop John. It's actually good that it's hot because it's it's like adding more difficulty. It's a, I think in Bodhgaya, it's a little bit less humid than here. It will be about as hot in the middle of the day, but it cools down more at night. So I think in the morning time, I'm hoping it will be a little bit cooler. Uh, but yeah, if, if if I just surrender to the experience, it's actually, not a problem can do a number of bows and and not have to worry about just uh the sweat and the the discomfort it's actually totally endurable so we can be quite happy when when we have this quality of patient endurance there's patient endurance is part of a set of qualities actually in the buddha's teachings the dhammas that beautify a practitioner and that's kanti patient endurance and soracha, which is sometimes translated as humility. It could be humbleness. That's something I'd like to touch on as well, because it's a very important quality as we come to the practice. And sometimes when we first start out, we're very, very humble. And we first start out and we, we come to the monastery, everything's new. And it's just tell me what to do. Tell me what the rules are here. Tell me what the, uh, practices are here and we're happy just to follow along with whatever. But then over time, as we start to see the, you know, the quirks of the ajans and the, the little faults here and there in the monastery, or we notice other people not doing things correctly and we, we kind of know how things are supposed to be done, we can start to get critical and we can start to get a little bit, maybe even egotistical about our position in the monastery. So that's a big danger. So we have to cultivate this quality of soracha. The Buddha recommended that even for senior monks to always have the attitude of being like a, it's kind of a strange analogy, but he says, always be like a newly wed stepdaughter. And he said, when the, don't, don't be like how she gets later on. So uh, the newlywed stepdaughter, she's very meek and, uh, cowering at all the her new parents her new family and she is uh wants to do everything perfectly wants to help out but then after a year or two 
things change. She knows how things are done. She's sort of running the show and criticizing everybody. And so the Buddha said, don't be like that. I said, if you should always be like the newlywed stepdaughter. So even for the senior monks, actually still being humble, still being meek, still actually having an attitude that, well, yeah, maybe this new person, maybe this junior monk actually does have a better way of doing it. I have to be open to that. Um, not because I want the more junior people to be running the place, but they might actually have some good ideas and it's not just do it my way because I say so. It's one of the, another one of the wonderful qualities of the Buddha is that he never said do something just because I'm the Buddha. You know, he totally could because he's the Buddha. He's, he could just say do this and not give a reason and just say do it just because I'm the Buddha. Don't ask questions. But the Buddha always gave a reason. And somebody asked him, why do we follow this rule? Why do we follow this precept? The Buddha would just give an, he would sit down, give an explanation why, why that's followed, why it is that way. If he gave a certain teaching, somebody would ask about it. He would actually take the time to explain why, it, why he teaches that way. He didn't just say, do it because I do it because I say so. Do it because I'm the leader. Now do it because I'm the Ajahn. Don't ask questions. So the Buddha never did that. It's, it's actually pretty amazing when you think about it because he could have done that if people had enough faith in him. Just do it because I said so. Don't ask questions. And the Buddha has this other amazing quality that he tended to practice whatever he taught. It wasn't like, do as I say, not as I do. So, you know, you all have to do all these practices, but I'm the big Ajahn, so I'm going to, you know, take it easy and take all, all sorts of privileges. And we don't want to have that attitude. I don't think Lung Cha or any of the, the senior monks who end up, you know, making it in the long term, they don't, they don't have that attitude. There might be perks to being an abbot or being senior monks. You know, you get respected and people have gratitude and appreciation for you. But if we get enamored with those things or get intoxicated by them, that's a big danger. That's a big danger for us senior monks. So to remain, have that attitude of humility, say for myself, if I get offered things or get given requisites or offers for travel or transport for myself, it's important to remind myself not to take it for granted and not to expect it. So if to still have that Samana attitude and for the anybody who is a monk here or, or just even for any of the lay people who might want to ordain later on to have that Samana attitude of, if I get something, that's fine. If I get nothing, that's good too. Being, being okay with regard to both. We get on with things, we get on with the practice. I guess another good topic to focus on would be the topic of metta, goodwill, specifically metta for ourselves. And this one is also one that's translated in various ways, loving kindness, uh, goodwill, well-wishing. And in the West, we tend to stay away from the translation of just love but uh, curiously, I've been coming back to that as a more useful kind of translation for metta. Love, but uh, more maybe not, not unconditional love because if it's unconditioned, it's Nibbana. So we're not, we're not going all the way there just yet. But it's, I guess that 
word love is kind of coupled with kindness, friendliness. Metta is kind of similar to mitta, which is friend. And the Buddha was a good friend to people. So we have to be a good friend to ourselves and recognizing we already have metta for ourselves just by the fact that we're here for this retreat, enduring the heat and, and coming in and doing these meditations in the middle of the day. We're recognizing that this is something valuable, something good that we can do for ourselves. And metta is also, perhaps it can be coupled with mudita, which I tend to translate as rejoicing. I don't uh, tend towards the translation of sympathetic joy because sympathetic joy kind of implies that somebody does something good and we rejoice in it. But I think with mudita, it's a bit more something that we can actually cultivate at any time. So that sense of rejoicing, and we can bring up thoughts of gratitude. Gratitude is also also related to mudita. Thoughts of gratitude, gratitude for Buddha Dhamma Sangha, gratitude for this Dhamma life we're able to live, gratitude for our teachers, gratitude for our parents. This can lead to mudita, a sense of rejoicing. We can rejoice in our own wholesome aspirations. Uh, we can rejoice in determinations that our Dhamma friends might make. Also, mudita is a skillful way to remove resentment or to remove the comparing mind. So there might be a lot of competition, for example, in the Sangha, when a certain monk might do sitter's practice or do some practice that I'm not able to do. And I might, I might think, oh, I wish I could I'm, I'm not good enough to do that, that. I don't have enough boon. I don't have enough barami to do that particular practice. Or somebody might be doing some act of merit or some act of generosity that we're not yet able to, to achieve. So we might think, oh, that's too bad. I can't do that. And we might develop a little bit of resentment, a little bit of jealousy based on that. And so mudita directly removes those unwholesome states. And what's more, mudita is actually one of the easiest ways to make a huge amount of merit because it's said that we actually get a share. We get a share of the other person's merit, whatever they're doing. All we have to do is rejoice in their goodness. And we don't even have to go through all the whole effort that they're putting into doing whatever merit they're doing. All we have to do is rejoice in their goodness. And then we get a share of that. And it's actually hard to do because uh, it's not not really the normal way of acting at least at least in america we don't uh, we're not normally taught to rejoice in the goodness of others although people do as they learn the dhamma as they come to the monasteries people can learn this it's one of the other marvelous and wonderful qualities of the dhamma is that it can be learned what we didn't know before, we can learn it, whether we're Thai, Western, Malaysian, Singaporean, anywhere in the world, anybody can learn the Dhamma. And learning itself is kind of a magical thing. What we didn't know before, we can know. What we didn't see before, we can see it. What we didn't realize before, we can actually realize it. And even though the Dhamma teaching tells us to go against our desires, go against our defilements, somehow we still have sattha, so we see that as a good thing. And the nature of defilement is it doesn't want to be gone against. The nature of desire is that it doesn't just go away by fulfilling it. In effect, fulfilling desires just makes them stronger. So if, so the nature of desire, the Buddha talks about in the, in the, in the uh, Dhammachakapavajana Sutta, talks about just abandoning desire, the second noble truth, the cause of dukkha is these different types of craving and they're to be given up, abandoned. He just says, abandon it. 
you don't really have a technique or he doesn't really say how in the Four Noble Truths, he just says, abandon, relinquish, give it up. Because desire doesn't, we have to see that desire is very subtle. It doesn't go away by fulfilling it. The lie in the mind, the delusion in the mind is saying, oh, just, you know, once you get what you want, then you'll be happy. And perhaps we get what we want and there is a little bit of happiness for a little while and that's the gratification. The danger is it doesn't last, it, it's very fleeting and the escape is just abandoning it. And the danger is that when we fulfill our desires, it's just onto the next thing because if desire would go away by being fulfilled, then it wouldn't be desire. So just think about that for a minute. If desire would, if desire could go away by us fulfilling it, then it wouldn't be desire. So it's the nature of desire to not disappear when it's fulfilled. Lumpur Chao would talk about it as a tiger. So when we feed the tiger, it just gets stronger and more active. So we actually have to starve it. But then the problem is when we starve it, it gets angry. So when we starve the defilements, they get angry. That's why the practice is difficult. The first step to starving the defilements is the sila. And this is why sila can be a difficult practice for a lot of people. But if we stick with it, we won't be sorry. Because the sila at first, it'll, it'll tell us to not fulfill some of the desires we might want to fulfill. For example, we might like drinking. We might like drinking alcohol. And if we take on the five precepts, then we no longer drink alcohol. So even if the craving comes up, it's going to be very compelling. The mind is going to be telling us all sorts of reasons why it's okay just to take that one little sip of alcohol, that's not a big deal. And yet the sila is saying, no, the training is you can't do that. And so that's the beginning of going against the defilements. Then we learn how to practice through doing things like that step by step. And coming back to these qualities of faith and energy, sattha, virya. So with sattha, That also gives us the strength to do these things, to go, to have that, what the Buddha termed as unpleasant spiritual feeling. There's pleasant worldly feeling, unpleasant worldly feeling, and there's pleasant spiritual feeling. Pleasant spiritual feeling is classed as the jhanas, the samadhi, and then unpleasant spiritual feeling is the going against the defilements those two types of spiritual feeling are both necessary. So that's probably enough. I've, uh, I think I've said enough for today and I'm very happy to see everybody here. So Anamodana for your efforts and for your practice in the Sautu. I'll leave it there. It's a bit of time for some questions, I think, 15 minutes. Thank you, Ajahn, for the inspiring talk. Um, I kept upon your talk in the IBI Agri podcast. 
so I am a fan. <laughs> um, so while you're talking about Sada and the five powers, um, uh, I've also reminded me of what uh, Ajahn Amaro said about um, the balance between Sada and the wisdom, Panya. And so um, I'd like to just understand um, how do you reconcile between your Sada for the uh, 10,000 prostration uh, with the Silabata Paramasa? Thank you. Very good question. Well, uh, there's kind of two questions there just to address about the, uh, the prostrations. I'm not necessarily thinking of getting anything from the prostrations, which would be Silabhata Bharamasa, but that I'm doing them just to fulfill a promise to myself that I would do these prostrations if I didn't keep this other Aditana that I made, that I would keep it a Bayagiri. So, uh, but in terms of balancing Sadha and Panya, that's another way of thinking of the five faculties is like a teeter-totter, like a Sadha on one side and Panya on the other, and then they have to be balanced and they're balanced on the fulcrum of Sati, which is in the center. And so uh, Sadha and Panya, if you have too much Sadha and not enough Panya, then you might just believe anything you hear and just think and perhaps even believe your own mind, whatever your mind thinks, then just you might have sadha in that sense and then not enough reflective capability of considering is this correct, is this not correct? And on the flip side, which is more what we have in the West where the panya is the really heavy and the sadha is very low, then you might have like the overly skeptical, overly scientific, um, viewpoint where it's like, well, uh, not, not really believing much of anything or being very, very skeptical and very kind of, uh, holding back from, from having, having sadha, having, having belief or confidence in much of anything, but actually that's another type of sadha. So, if you if you're a skeptic that's actually faith in your skeptic skepticism is actually uh, your particular worldview but those things need to be kept in balance and so how to bring them into balance we have the fulcrum of mindfulness and so mindfulness is what sees what's wholesome and unwholesome so if we see that we're getting caught by too much faith then and we're not reflecting enough then actually we need to maybe not just do breath meditation, but consider some Dhamma, consider some points of Dhamma and actually think that what's wholesome, what's unwholesome, maybe consider the teachings a little bit, consider what is the, what is the Buddhist teachings on whatever topic we're interested in. And we could use our thought in a wholesome way a little bit more bring the panya up a little bit and if the panya is too much maybe we just need to like if our if our mind is just running circles around us and we're just we just can't stop this like wild crazy thinking again not that we're trying to stop thinking but just to calm it down a little bit and so then coming back to just okay everything's okay right now Sometimes when people come into the monastery at a Bayagiri, uh, and really it's kind of interesting that almost everybody's the same actually. And people come in and stage by stage, they go through various stages of learning about the Dhamma. And so in the West, it's very interesting that I find myself now having met a lot of people who have come in new and fresh to the monastery. The first thing I end up saying is like, okay, don't worry, just just calm down, just everything, just it's it's gonna be okay. Just <laughs> people come in, kind of like <laughs> just uh, really really wound up. It's okay, just just breathe, just buto <laughs> buto. So maybe if the panya is too much, it's like we're we're kind of overanalyzing everything. 
and you need to just kind of set that aside and see the suffering it comes the reason it comes from sati is because sati sees the suffering of of each each of these states so sati can see the suffering of overanalyzing everything of being skeptical of everything that's actually a lot of suffering so we come back to just breathing in breathing out just calming the body and mind There's a few. Thank you, Ajahn, for giving me a chance to ask you questions. Uh, I have I have my personal questions about faith. I was born as a Buddhist. I raised as a Buddhist in Thailand. I have been, but because I'm, I got my Catholic education for many years. So is it acceptable, religiously speaking and faithfully speaking, to follow, I mean, several faith, not just only faith in Buddhism, but also in Catholicism? Uh, I have to explain that I'm not only a temple girl, I'm also a church girl. On each Tamasavana day, um, I joined the assembly at, at the temple to, to, to listen to Tamas talk given by uh, several Sankha members in, in Thailand and in Bangkok mostly that I'm based. And, on Sunday, I joined the Catholic Mass. So, do you think that we can harmonize society and not try to? I think I um, I study the Bible and also the uh, Tripido yeah. as well. Yes, my question. Yeah, that's a very, very good question, and, and it's very good if we can bring these things together. Yeah, it's really up to you in terms of your own practice, and you know when we learn a lot about the teachings of the Kruba Ajans, and I, I can't say so much in a public Dhamma talk, but we, we learned that all these different religions do have genuine beings that are associated with them, and these things are real. And so it's really where are our affinities, perhaps our affinities from past lives. You might actually have affinities with Jesus from past lives, for example, which mean, but you also might have confidence in the Kruba Ajans and then in the Dhamma practice. And so you want to listen to Dhamma talks as well. And so certainly uh, the mind is the mind. The mind is the, the one mind. And so if, if you find that doing these different practices and trying to bring these traditions together uh, is helpful for you, then, then certainly that's, I see that as totally fine and, and good, good thing to practice. Yeah. As to that, I would, my opinion is to leave it up to each individual who feels moved to do that rather than to kind of be too strong in suggesting that other people should do that, that like Buddhists should visit Christians or vice versa, that Christians, because there's so many different types of Christianity and so many different little branches of Buddhism as well. And not all, not all Christians will want to associate at all with people who are doing Buddhist practice. And, and vice versa. Uh, for myself, I have a lot of respect for Christianity, for good Christians who are holding virtue and, and qualities. And actually, it's very interesting that uh, right next to Abayagiri, our neighbors is a, is a Christian forest monastery. And we have a very good relationship with them. And, but we don't, we don't visit them all the time. We have, we have some exchanges. Um, they do have different rules than, than us, and uh, they like to drink wine, for example, um, and have beards. <laughs> and not that uh, those are bad things, not that wine and beards are bad in and of themselves, but that, uh, but I do have 
the, the abbot is a very special monk and, and I do have a good relationship with him and we do have a lot to talk about, but he, he actually had an interesting insight that there are fundamental differences between the practices of Christianity and Buddhism. And there is a point when you can have conversations to a point, but then there's a certain point where it's fundamentally different. And he said, I think he said it really well. He said, he said, uh, he said, for you guys, for you Buddhists, you're all about cultivating wholesome qualities. For us Christians, it's all about the Lord. It's all about just give your heart to Jesus and that's it. So he said, that's fundamentally different. So the Buddhists are all about, when we see from our Buddhist perspective, we look at Christians from our Buddhist perspective and we say, oh, what kind of qualities are they cultivating? Oh, I like Christians who cultivate sila. But from a Christian perspective, it's not about cultivating sila. It's about giving yourself to the Lord. And maybe that's not for all Christians, but uh, that was what Father Damien, the, the abbot of this monastery, said. And I thought it, I thought it was, I thought it was quite insightful. That being said, he has actually come to a Bayagiri and given talks at a Bayagiri. So uh, we do have a nice, we do have that type of relationship. Thanks so much for your insight, insightful sharing. I actually have two questions. I'll just, I was hoping you could expand on the, one of the last few things that you shared, which was on starving a tiger makes it stronger, on abandoning our desires, right? Through practicing sila. Oh, there was a quote that you used uh, towards the end, in which uh, you said to abandon our desires, it's akin to starving a tiger, which makes it angrier. And so cutting our desires off makes them stronger. So presumably when we come to this retreat, our desires go from, or rather what we are accustomed to goes from 100 to zero, right? And also on that same vein, I just want to ask for my second question, how do we transfer the knowledge and the mindfulness transformation that we have enjoyed during this retreat back to our home environments, which may uh, understandably be much more like bustling and a lot more stimulating. Yeah, thank you. I would, uh, just the first part of the question, I would say uh, you mentioned when we starve the tiger, it makes it stronger, but actually I would say the starving tiger is weaker. The starving tiger, when you starve the defilements, they get weaker, but they get angry. So, so they, they might lash out in various ways, but I do think that they become weaker, actually. Would it, in a sense, be helpful to feed it mozzles of food before slowly conditioning <laughs> it to like go away? Well, it's just... No, I don't have a drinking problem. It's not just... a perfect analogy. <laughs> it's <laughs> okay, just a, a way of getting our minds around it. It's not maybe exactly the way it works or exactly the experience. Um, but uh, in general, yeah, probably... Uh, yeah, I mean, you can't like kill it all at once. <laughs> That's what the monks are trying to do. If you're if you're a layperson, then maybe uh, just that's you know just try to keep the precepts and don't break the precepts, and that's good enough for now. And just show up for the meditations. That's that's good enough for now. So uh, maybe you could think of it on a different way too. You don't have to think of it as in terms of killing, in terms of starving a tiger and killing it. You can think of it in terms of feeding a baby and watching it grow. You're feeding it little dhamma morsels and, and kind of think of it in a positive sense. <laughs> and uh, your second question was around after the retreat, how do, you yeah. take, how do you take all this back? So this is about halfway through the, this is exactly halfway through the retreat, I think actually five day, day five. Um, yeah, that's, that's always a, a very good question. And there is ways to let it happen naturally, but also we do have to have some intention in terms of how we live our life, depending on our livelihood and our jobs after we leave the retreat. It is good to try to make a fairly firm intention. We do have to put some pressure on ourselves if we actually want to make progress in the practice and actually gain, do a practice that we can sustain so we can make a determination like I'll, I'll always meditate 30 minutes in the morning or th and 30 minutes in the evening or make that a priority. It's uh, as a, as a abbot, I, I need to do things like this. Like, uh, I know, uh, there's another, actually another abbot who I won't name, 
uh, one of the Western abbots who developed this really skillful means of he'd be meeting with people and he'd be like, oh, I, I have an important engagement. And then his important engagement was going to meditate. So he would actually dismiss people and say, oh, sorry, I have an important engagement. And, okay, okay, come, come, come. And then he'd go meditate. So you have to be able to do that if you want to keep your meditation practice going, not in a retreat setting. You have to say, okay, now it's, now it's time to meditate. And I'm always going to put that period of time aside for that. Um, so in short, it's just to um, dedicate a lifestyle to it, set the right intentions and put in the right effort. And, yeah, and also the one pra, the lunar observance days, you can make some sort of determination that make that a special day or one day a week if you can't do it on the one pra because the one pra day of the week changes. You know, if you're, you have a day off or something like that, dedicate that somehow to, to Dhamma. Any more? Okay, and then maybe, maybe his question after. There's one more over here that he raised his hand in the beginning. Yeah. Hi, Ajahn. Thanks for the Dhamma talk. Do you have any ways to advise a child to practice patient endurance and self-restraint? <laughs> like knowing that spitting saliva at her friends is wrong, one should exercise restraint not to do it. Thank you for your guidance. So this is one of those cases where you can say, you have to be like the Buddha and not, don't do that just because I told you to, but actually be able to explain why, why spitting is bad or why 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 we do certain things why we act in certain ways children just want attention just like all of us actually so when we when a child is bad sometimes they're acting out because that's the only time we pay attention to them if they're good we just ignore them so then they're, they're when they're bad we don't ignore them and so then they they act out and it's an interesting psychology thing that plays out so if we actually Sometimes if we actually pay more attention to our children and then uh, it can happen in the monasteries too, in subtle ways where uh, the senior monks might only pay attention to the bad monks because it's like, oh, they need, they need to be told or whatever, but then you don't pay attention to the good monks because they're just acting, you don't need to like fix anything, but it's actually good to raise, you know, give attention to the good monks and it, it, it's actually, uh, in a way it rewards that type of behavior. And so if the child acts out and their behavior gets awarded by the parent paying attention to them, then yes, they're going to keep acting out. And that is, that is, even if it's bad attention, like getting scolded, at least it's something, at least I'm not being ignored. And so uh, you do have to maybe make a one as you can explain, but then two is like maybe maybe start rewarding the good actions. You know, start to use mindfulness to look and see when does the child do something good, and then and then pay attention to that good action that the child does, rather than wait to pay attention to it, wait till it to act out and be bad to pay attention to it. That's my opinion. I thought about it anyway. Uh, I'd seen you on when I saw you just a few minutes back in a couple of days also I saw but oh, this is that American monk that today I got to know you from there because <laughs> well, I used to see you on YouTube and that's how I got to know that okay my question is in the uh, during the discourse you mentioned about uh, the samvedanas that's the pain and the uh, happiness that arises during a meditation okay here we also have the third samvedana that is the neutral one so how do we identify that and uh, what is the kind of contemplative process that we need to have about it? Yeah, I spoke about spiritual unpleasant and spiritual pleasant feelings so that it's good to clarify that that's not necessarily during meditation, but it's just during our practice or during our Dhamma life in general. So, so we talk about spiritual pleasant feeling as it's defined as like Samadhi, very, very pleasant. Uh, absorption into meditation and then 
spiritual unpleasant sensation or unpleasant Vedana is, is the feeling associated with going against desire, going against the defilements. Then there is, I didn't touch on it, but there is spiritual equanimity, spiritual, neither pleasant nor non-pleasant. And um, unfortunately, I can't remember what that is. <laughs> Does anybody know? <laughs> That maybe is the fourth jhana or is like spirit is like the highest level of equanimity it could be there's there's equanimity with diversity and equanimity with singularity i think the equanimity with diversity is like the worldly equanimity and the spiritual equanimity would be the equanimity with singularity or the equanimity in terms of a unified mind so if you it starts to get a bit academic. I don't like to talk about the different levels of jhanas because um, it gets a little bit academic, but it, it's, uh, you know, you have piti and sukha, and then those are actually kind of states which are shaking the mind and they're kind of coarse, and then they drop away by stages until you're in the fourth jhana where you just have my uh, equanimity purified by mindfulness, or sorry, mindfulness purified by equanimity without pleasure or pain and just, just equanimity. So I think that would probably be a spiritual, spiritual, neither pleasant nor non-pleasant. Uh, I identify it. The reason I asked you specific on this is during the, my meditation process, what I have realized is, okay, pain is something that we can make out. Happiness is something that we can make out. But as we just move through the body, we are scanning through the entire uh, body. There were points which were, there was some Vedana in that. But they were just neither ha painful nor they were uh, happy. I just moved forward and it burst out into a very big pain. I just said, oh, I didn't notice that this was a pain. It just burst out into a pain. Okay. So that's where the question triggered into my mind. And I was wondering, oh, what is that neutral Samvedana which was there and which suddenly burst into a pain? Yeah, in terms of that, that's more just mindfulness in general. We don't... It, when I, in, in our tradition, we don't really get that nitpicky around each, each little feeling. It's more seeing the whole thing as a whole. In terms of indifference or, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant feeling, uh, we, if we have delusion, which is active, then we tend to want it to be pleasant or unpleasant. We tend to get deluded by indifferent feeling or feelings of equanimity because it's it's something we're not used to we haven't acquired a taste for it we haven't acquired a taste for peace yet and so the mind still has that desire there that wants it to be interesting even if it's unpleasant it's more interesting than just being nothing and so it, it is good to see that and use that as part of your contemplation and see how it affects the mind that's the third Foundation of Mindfulness, Chitta Nupasana, is seeing how the feelings affect the mind. So when we see a, there's a indifferent feeling, it's neutral. How does that affect the mind? Is the mind going, hey, what is that? Hey, what's going on? What kind of proliferations are going on around that? And then you, we can use that as a contemplation. And, oh, why did the mind get stirred up by that? There was just nothing there. And, then we can say, okay, well, maybe the, let's try to go back to the breath and see how that helps the mind. Yeah. One more. Thank you, Ajahn, for the talk. Um, I have a question with, uh, pertaining to that, um, the, the topic about uh, mudita. You mentioned that like, uh, when we experience um, mudita, we can... Uh, um, partake in the merit that someone else has performed. So what if we were like uh, dedicating um, merit to someone who, who maybe does not have any faith in the Dhamma, or who doesn't understand what this uh, offering to the Sangha actually means? So um, do they actually receive the merit from this? Um, well, also, like, I have to back up a little bit with Mudita. I, I did mention uh, they say that uh, you get a share of the merit. So I actually Maybe my my faith faculty is a little bit higher than the panya sometimes, so so I do I do believe the ajans when they say that, and uh, in terms of 
spreading merit to somebody else or sharing merit, uh, particularly family members, I would say, I, I do believe that they receive it even if they don't, even if they aren't Buddhist or they don't have faith themselves. I think just by that connection of that relationship, they will receive it. Yes, family members, it's a very strong relationship. There's, you could think of it as there's a, like a cord or a thread connecting family members together. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. One more. <laughs> uh, John, thank you for your talk. I just want to ask about advice for practice. These past few days, my back hurts a lot, and I realize my mind tends to fantasize, to feel positive. Like I'll think about buying a watch, or I think about, oh, how great it would be in this job. And I was wondering if there's any like reflections that I could think of to sort of bring the mind back into the present moment, because part of me really wants to be with that painful feeling and to be in the present moment, but it's just, it's just very hard. Yeah. yeah, the mind is always trying to get out of pain. So those are actually some, those are pretty innocent mental proliferations that you just listed. So you're already pretty good there. Um, they, but if you do want to be present with the pain, I would, I would suggest like coming up with like a mantra, like not me, not mine, not myself, not me, not mine not myself and, and thinking about the back and the pain as not self and trying to see the not self nature of it that, well, if it was self, I could just tell this pain to go away and use that as a reflection, as a contemplation. But then if it becomes too much, then you, if the pain becomes too strong, you don't want to force yourself uh, to focus on it too much if it causes the mind to become negative. And so at that point you might change postures or find some way that makes it slightly less that you're then able to look at it and try to keep it in balance, but also forgive yourself for the mental proliferations because that's, that's also natural. And you can see that the mind is not self also, and that the mind, the nature of the mind is to recoil from pain. And so you can see that, oh yeah, it's just trying to find some way out and, and then maybe not pay attention to the mental proliferation so much 